Hi, and welcome back to our next episode in the Onward series. I'm your host, Monica Schallenberger, and I have our awesome team with us, Sam Zavala and Carrie Douglas, who are program coordinators in our department. And we discuss chapter seven in this episode, which is focusing on the bright spots. Can't recommend this book enough. As a reminder, it's written by months of the year and what you kind of go through as an educator. But if you are not an educator and you're listening, this is content that can be applied to any profession. Can't wait for you to hear this conversation. So let's take a listen now. Hi, Carrie and Sam, and welcome back to Conversations Onward series. It's good to be back. Hi, Monica. All right. Well, we, for the first time, are recording in a room. We are like 20 feet away from each other with masks on, with a very serious microphone. So it's just exciting to be back to have a conversation about this incredible book. And to give context to listeners who haven't who haven't listened to the first Onward series, which is totally fine. They're not completely related. This is about the book onward cultivating emotional resilience and educators by Lena Aguilar and she basically breaks the book down into all 12 months of the school year slash summer focuses on content that's pertinent to the time frame that's in the school year last month was taking care of yourself or like we called it navigating negative mindsets and this is chapter seven focus on the bright spot so to give a little bit of context, she um, opens the chapter that, and we will also link the book in the show notes. Talking about when she was a second grade teacher, she read this book called Tribes, A Process for Social Development and Cooperative Learning by the author Gibbs. And she did a secret admirer activity. I don't know if you about you guys, but I thought this was adorable. Yeah, love it. So cute. And basically the rules were the kids drew random names out of a bucket. They couldn't tell anyone that they who they picked. And then they observed that other kid all day long and they found behaviors to appreciate. And by the end of the day, they got back together and they summarized these behaviors that they saw in each other and these kids ate it up and then they asked to keep doing it and they did it the whole year. And the point of her opening that whole chapter was just how focusing on strengths, assets, or bright spots really does highlight so many positive behaviors in the workplace, on campuses, et cetera. And so then she starts to dive into it. So she's discussing how she was instructionally coaching a teacher next. And the teacher was claiming that she, that she personally was a bad teacher and nothing was going right in her classroom. So the author goes into her classroom and she's surprised when she's observing because the teacher's classroom wasn't nearly as bad as she, as she thought it was. So let's talk about acknowledging strengths and why it's so difficult for people, teachers, just in general. I'm sure people can identify with that teacher who thought they were horrible, but then someone comes in and you, you get a good observation or if you don't work in the educational field. You think you're bad at something, but really you're not as bad as you think you are. So let's just talk about why do you think that's so hard for people to acknowledge their strengths? I think that nobody wants to feel like they're, uh, they're like, yeah. showing off. And that's like a big um, thing for teachers. For some reason, you know, at some point in our career, we were kind of like, I guess, 
commission not to do that. Like I remember when I first started teaching in Florida, there was a teacher on our staff who like people would share positive things and like strengths that we did yourself. And she would literally like make these snarky comments and call them lambs, like oh I am, like look at me. And that was like my first oh. experience. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. And that's like, okay, well, clearly that's not good for, you know, don't share your strengths because people are going to talk about you. And yeah. so, and so I found a team that was the opposite of that and was supportive and, and celebrated strengths. Like, I remember really thought that was like, you know, a big no-no as a teacher. Like, stand up and share something like that because I think it's, you know, possibly ridiculed. So I know it's kind of extreme, <laughs> but I think that that happens enough that people stand down and they don't share and celebrate their strengths because they're you know, uh, as you mentioned that, I was thinking, man, that's kind of like a bully mindset, like tearing someone down when something that they're good at should be expressed in a way that's kind of like a form of bullying, I think. Yeah. Because it's like bullies like to tear down people in the minute they can find something to make themselves feel better. So maybe that was a way that she, maybe she was feeling inadequate and that's how she found ways to um, make herself feel better. It just seems kind of odd. <laughs> well, the thing, I think the problem is, is there's such a fine balance to humility and confidence. And we see so many examples daily outside of work and work of people on both extremes where like someone who can't take a compliment ever, they're so humble that like they literally will be everyone's doormat to the extreme of the person who's so overconfident that it's exhausting because all they do is talk about themselves and then everything in between. So I think that's why it's difficult to talk about strengths. Like I know we've all talked about this, but like in appraisals, like when you are talking about the things you're good at, it does feel uncomfortable because none of us in this room, and I'm sure a ton of people who are listening, want to come across as a person who's like, look at me. I'm like homecoming queen of all of these topics and I'm so skilled and you should all be like me. Um, so I think that's probably why it's so difficult to talk about that but also it's difficult because um it, there's a lot more sometimes there's a lot more good things going on than we think because our brains have a negative negativity bias and i like that she talks about how the brain perceives negative stimuli faster and more intensely than positive stimuli and this statistic blew me out of the water i can't stop thinking about it but within a tenth of a second we can store negative stimuli in our memories Big portions of our brain and neural systems activate in a response to what we perceive as a threat. So danger lodges itself in our brain within a tenth of a second, whereas a positive experience requires at least 12 seconds to be absorbed. I'm going to say that again. Danger lodges itself in your brain within a tenth of a second, whereas positive experiences require at least 12 seconds to be absorbed. Like you're not even making it to a full second before there is danger or negativity in your brain and positivity has to be soaked in for at least 12 seconds. I mean, that's an incredible deficit in my opinion. And I'm not mad about it. Like we had to survive one way or another in early humanhood. And so they had to focus on the negative to survive. There's a lot of other reasons. Another reason is it can be countercultural to focus on the positive, kind of like what you were just saying, Carrie. And so you had a coworker of an example of how you saw coworkers sucked into venting or complaining negatively that affected a campus culture in terms of like that person was shooting down people trying to be positive. 
Can you think of anything else where you have like a stark example where it truly was detrimental to the culture of the campus team, et cetera, because people just got sucked into venting? I think usually anytime I experienced something like that is when uh, we were entering the fall wall of the year, which is usually October, November, where all the assessments and everything were coming to a head and just focusing sometimes, even if we didn't mean to, looking at the students that we inherited and sometimes wondering, what am I going to do here? This kid's not going to move. And just having, listening to others and possibly having it kind of meander to our thoughts of like venting what we thought was productive, but really it was really detrimental because nothing was accomplished out of that whole situation. Absolutely nothing. And so while some people think it's good to vent and it could be, it's like, what are we doing with that? How can we put a productive spin on it mm-hmm. to where if we're saying everything wrong, okay, now that we have everything out in the open, how can we fix it? Like, how can we go and have something productive come out of something like that? Because otherwise, it's just going to be a complaint session all day, every day. Yeah. I like how you said, how can we make it productive? Because I don't think there's anything wrong with venting. I think that's how, A, people connect. It makes you feel heard. I think it builds empathy. And I think it does help people work through solutions that they might not have been able to think about before. I think about calling my mom or like a good friend. If I'm venting that they might just say that one sentence. Well, like, have you thought about this? I'm like, no, because I'm so wrapped up in whatever this is. But I do know that being on a campus is when I recognize it the most is that it can be so significant. Like I'll never forget being an associate principal standing in the hall in the mornings welcoming teachers in. And it's incredible the amount of Monday Monday conversations and topics like, hey, how are you? Well, it's a Monday. And you're like, oh, God. (laughs) Or like people like, how are you? And you're like, living the dream. And you're like, oh, are you? Are you okay? Are you going to make it? And I just, it's so much easier for people. And I notice in conversations and watching other people interact, a lot of times people will jump on the Monday. The Monday thing is always so significant to me. People are like, oh, yeah, it is Monday. We have five days left till Friday. And it's like, oh, gosh. So, like, I – and I think I read that actually in Todd Whitaker's – I think it's 16 great – 16 things great principals do differently book about how, like, if someone sneezes, the whole campus can catch a cold. And so, like, I just remember, like, really changing my responses to, like, a Monday high in the hall because – you know, or someone's like, how are you? I'm like, I'm doing great. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to sit here and complain like, oh, it's raining. It's another Wednesday, you know. And again, we're all human. I'm not saying you can't do that. I just think that it's important for us to change those little micro behaviors to where we can make a macro difference. Yeah. And I think what you said there about it's, it can be healthy to that. I think you just want to make sure you're doing it with the right people. Yeah. Because if you get in that like toxic circle yes. of people, like you've been in the lounge, you know, eating lunch when it happens. Like I've had to like physically remove myself, yeah. you know, sometimes and just eat in my room mm-hmm. because, you know, the toxicity just breathes, you know, in certain atmospheres. Um, and she talks about later on in the chapter also doing like personal reflections yeah. and like writing down like what's going on. And so if there's something like you don't feel like you have someone you can talk to or you can't do it at work, um, you know, I found journaling, writing, Something like that to be um, a healthy way for me to be able to vent, but not, you know, sit in it for too long so that it becomes toxic. 
And I'm like writing notes while you're talking because I just had two things come up. I think the first thing to remember also is if you treat your social media like a diary and you vent on there, A, it's unprofessional, but B, it can always get back to your supervisor. It's so unprofessional. Yeah, I mean, some people, tr- and, and I'm not judging those people, I'm just saying you have to be very careful that when you like say venting, it's okay venting if you have a certain audience, but like Facebook is not your audience to vent to. But then I also think about, too, when I was coaching teenage girls on a volleyball team, I used to say like, I don't mind if you're frustrated or if you need to vent about stuff. If I can encourage you, try to find someone not on this team talk to your friend who's on the soccer team or go talk to your mom when you get home or whoever you confide in that's not on this team because like Carrie was just saying it can become a vicious cycle of just like Vince slash slash now we're all cancerous and now we're all going down on the burning plane of whatever team we're on that's such a vivid analogy I would say that I love that she puts like actual scientific like research into all of this stuff and every chapter and it's not just like yeah, I know. It's like, I feel like we're on the Elena Aguilar train, but if you guys have not read her book, if you're listening, like you have to get this book. I mean, not to listen to this, we're giving you a little bit of notes, but there's so much content we are not even touching on. And like she said, I'd like that. It's not an opinion based book that she's saying different types of things. Okay. That's backed by information outside of her brain. Okay. So how can we steer away from negative mind paths? I think we've discussed like, how sometimes we can get sucked into the natural way our brains are wired. And then we discuss how sometimes just like in human interactions that we have, especially in large groups, it can be easy to get sucked in. And we're talking about changing these micro ways, micro behaviors that will affect the rest of the bigger picture. And I will say I did like that she talks about setting intentions to direct her mind. So for people that are listening, she just talks about like, a legitimate practice of getting into a meeting and writing on the top of the page what intention she's going to have for that meeting. So in this specific example, she talks about being open. She says, I'm holding my intention to be open to new ideas and I will ask non-judgmental questions, seek to understand others' perspectives, mentally acknowledge suggestions and be willing to change my mind. I mean, that's a long intention. doesn't have to be that long. And then she just kind of circles back and reminds. And again, that's not like an overly unique Thing. I just like that she put that example in there. So have either of you tried this or like what were y'all's thoughts about this practice? You know, I have done this um, in various settings, especially I think um, times that I have really done this would probably be parent conferences. <laughs> and um, yeah. especially with some of my uh, students that I may have had more difficulty with. Um, just knowing um, how to really take in the parent and um, really make a, a choice to say, I'm not going to get sucked into any yeah, negative. So good. Um, because in my first year of teaching, I made a mistake of doing that and it was totally unfruitful and it ruined a relationship, not only with the parent, but with the student. And <sighs> um, I learned from that because it was devastating, but really just focusing on, you know, keeping a a clear mindset and a positive mindset going into parent conferences was one that I had to often do. Um, And while it may have been hard for some, when I really made an intention to do that, it's like everything else became clearer Mm -hmm. after talking with those parents because 
I don't, I really don't think parents come into a situation to like bulldoze you down. But when you're talking about their kid, that is their baby. That is their world. Yes, it is. And even though their child may be different at home than at school, you have to find a balance and you have to find the good things in that kid too. Even if you have to stretch, you know, all kids have some goodness in them. So just really keeping that positive mindset going into that. It, it's first thing I thought of when I read that was parent conferences. This is the way that Yeah, I that's such that. a great example. So I like the part um, where she was talking about kind of explaining the idea of an intention. She says, an intention is softer and more personal than a goal. It's a statement about how you want to be or show up in a situation. It's about how you want to orient your mind and heart and what you want to pay attention to. I think like we tend to be as leaders very goal oriented a lot of times in meetings and interactions with like employees and colleagues and bosses um and which is good but i i haven't ever set an intention for an interaction like that it's always yeah. a goal so um i like that this is just kind of a different way to look at it and, and yes there's things we have to accomplish and we have to do but the interaction is more about your mind and your heart and paying attention to that rather than just what we have to get done. So that kind of stuck out to me. And so unpack what both of you said. So I'll start with you, Carrie. I think it's so good that you're pointing out the mind and the heart because how many times do you go into mesh both of your ideas into a conversation that's either high conflict, you're gonna have to talk about something awkward, whatever the case is and whatever kind of position you hold. And it stresses you out legitimately to have to have that conversation because I think about teachers who aren't comfortable talking to parents, which is totally understandable because sometimes it can become a heated situation or maybe they don't have all the information or feel equipped to have those conversations. But if you're setting your heart and your mind to saying like, I'm going to keep myself separate from this. I remember that's when I started feeling way less stressed about conversations more when I was an administrator, having a lot more unfortunate negative conversations with adults. But I remember thinking like when people would call so, so upset about something. And they're like, I'm sorry, I'm just really upset. And I just remember feeling so calm after I made that resolution and be like, it's fine. Like you're calling because you think this X, Y, and Z happened in the classroom with your child. It's your child. All you heard is one side of the story. I'm happy to help and investigate. But I remember when I first started as an administrator and the conversations, I was so stressed about it because I knew if I called this parent, they were going to be combative and aggressive right off the bat every single time I called before I even opened my mouth. And that's just usually, hopefully, not a normal type of conversation you're having in your personal life. So a lot of us aren't equipped to be like dealing with overly aggressive strangers unless you've worked at like direct TV or something, you know, like and custom. I mean, unless you've worked in customer service or if anyone's waited tables before, like you've, you've been there, but it's been a while, but you know what I'm saying? Like, unless you're just like really well equipped and you've worked in customer service, like that's not, I don't think we got taught that in college. I feel like I love my education program, but I, you know, you learn about reading strategies and like classroom management, but like, and maybe this has been, it's been a while. It's been a second since I've been in college. So maybe they're teaching it now, but I just think like, what if they did a whole communication for teachers course and maybe I want to reach out to university here and like do this. That would have been really helpful. But even like, sure. but even like coworkers, like, can you imagine? Like, I'm thinking of like a specific example that I teach in one of the professional learning sessions that I lead about a PLC. You've got a condescending coworker who continues to bring up stuff that's negative, and then like they're approaching you in the hall. Like, can you set an intention in your head to not be irritated with them? 
because of X, Y, and Z. I'm just saying this could be really good. Look, I'm like starting a whole university communications program. I'm sure they already have amazing classes like that, but I'm not going to say where I went to college. Okay. Um, all right. So then I like, and I, the thing I like about her book too, is that she's offering specific protocols and it's not just like, you know, redirect your mind. Thanks for reading. Bye. Like she has like very specific protocols and not just one. She's like, here, I have a lot. So the one that I, that one of them that stood out to me was rain. And basically it's a four step process on how to deal with strong emotions because you can't have the ability to focus on bright spots unless you are having the skill, the skills, the skills <laughs> to deal with your own feelings of frustration, anger, sadness, fear. None of those things will let you see bright spots. So she says when something frustrating happens, you can go through this rain practice. And I don't know if she's made this up. I didn't Google it. Who knows? So the first thing she says is to recognize that you're experiencing something. So I think we should use Sam's example because it was so good, Sam, but like a parent phone call, parent, you call parent off the bat, they're feeling aggressive. You're probably going to step back and observe that you're feeling maybe anxious, <laughs> nervous, uh, <yes>. or <laughs> highly irritated. Maybe they just started right off the bat, like bashing your practices as a teacher. And you're like, Hey, look here, buddy. I spent X, Y, and Z amount of hours on this class that you're saying I don't know how to teach, you know? But seriously, recognizing that you feel frustrated, angry, anxious, then accepting whatever it is. So like, okay, I'm acknowledging this is frustrating when a parent is being aggressive towards me because of this. And then investigating, like what's going on inside of me? Okay, so why is this yelling bringing up anxiety? Maybe you had a parent growing up that screamed at you and that really is a trigger or... The way they're talking to you is bringing up some anxiety from when you were in school or what. I mean, it could be a million things here. I'm not going to turn this into a fake counseling session with this person. We don't even know what we're talking about. <laughs> and then non-identification asks you to remind yourself that you are not your emotions or the stories you spend. And I feel like if I read that sentence when I was 23, I'd be like, okay, this is floydy toity But now I'm like, yeah, remind yourself that you are not an anxious person you're just having the feeling of anxiety right now because this person is screaming at you and it's causing you stress. That's funny because I used to tell people all the time once I learned how to not let it affect me, it took a while, but they're like, you're so calm after that phone call. I was like, she's not yelling at me. She's yelling at the world. <laughs> and they're like, what in the world are you talking about? I was like, I just stopped taking it personal. Like, and like you said, once you stop taking it personally, it is completely freeing. And, you know, those emotions that I used to get of like being like super hopped up and mm -hmm. like, you don't know what I've been through and yeah. like, going all in my mind. I'm no longer wasting my energy on those reactions. And it's very freeing because that's exhausting on the opposite uh, part of the conversation. And so that's what I just tell people. They're not yelling at me. They're yelling at the world. <laughs> well, and I'm like, we're turning this to like a mini parent communication thing now. I'm not trying to make it that. That is our example. But honestly, it's like a form of customer service. Like, could you imagine a Chick-fil-A person getting yelled at? Like, they're so nice about everything. Yeah. And you know, they're absorbing it, but you can't tell because they're so kind. And they're just like telling you to have a good day all the time. I mean, I've never seen a bad situation happen at Chick-fil-A. Like, does anything ever bad go wrong or there? Or like Disney World. I've seen someone oh, yell at a Disney really? cast Interesting. And they 
face date the course and i'm like oh my god yeah who's yelling at goofy like you really like, are frustrated the place on earth. I'm like, that is happy and so and so is chick-fil-a <laughs> The, Dis the food, the food Disney of our area. <laughs> but did it bring anything up for you, Carrie, about the process and practice of rain during stressful situations? You like that, Sam? Yeah, the Disney food. Yeah, and, um, actually, um, I have a hard time with this whole process. Okay, tell me why. Because I get stuck on the R. <laughs> the first letter. <laughs> okay. Yeah, if I'm yeah. naming it and like recognizing it, I kind of feel like it's a failure. Like I've It's kind of made me realize, and I think this also goes back if anybody was listening to the last one, some perfectionist tendencies. Yeah, yes. <laughs> um, I'm like, do you need a hug? I can't hug you because we're social distancing. <laughs> yeah, so here's your air hug. Here's your air hug. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's just, I like that I like it. I like that it's step by step and it's concrete and it's given me something that I can look at and that I can work with and improve on. I think I'm so drawn to this specific protocol because becoming a parent, I've been obsessed, shocker, with like parent research practices, things like that around like kids not being able to manage their behaviors and they're constantly developing brain, et cetera. And the number one trend that I keep seeing on different like psychology accounts, articles, et cetera, is that like kids poor behavior and, and oftentimes it's natural not to give it an excuse, you get my drift, can trigger internal deep feelings in you as a parent. And then like when I think about that in education, yes, there are some differences between parenting and teaching, obviously. Let's just put that out there. But like in the classroom, these kids or these teenagers or your coworkers acting a certain way that it goes against whatever you don't agree with, you don't like the way they talk to you, they're late, whatever, drives you nuts, it can be triggering. And that's why I like it is because she kind of dives deeper and deeper to like ask the deep question. It's not that this student is tardy every day that's driving you nuts. It's not that your department chairs, you think that their bossy is driving. There's something below that. Sometimes it could be surface, not to be like overly counseling session here. But I think that the ones that really drive you up the wall, you have to keep asking why until you get to the root cause of it. And that's why I think I like it so much because it really is parallel with a lot of parenting research on how to deal with meltdowns how to handle behavior that you've like asked them to do 1700 times and they're not doing it. It's the same thing in a classroom. I mean, but you're managing at the secondary level, 200 of those. Oh, and by the way, their teenagers going through puberty. Good luck. Just kidding. It was the best. Um, so anyways, I really liked that, but that's a great point that it can, it can make you kind of steer away from that because I swear you're a type three on an Enneagram and you do to take that test. Yes, I are you? Yes. Yes. Okay. That's Enneagram for those of y'all that are listening. It's a good personality test. Okay. So last, we're just going to hit a really light topic of the chapter, diving into sadness. And I can't remember who I was. Oh, I was talking to someone else who was doing these, uh, reading this chapter. And they're like, I don't know. I just don't want to talk about this part. And I was like, that's what she's saying. So basically, she the author Elena Aguilar is talking about how she even procrastinated to write this part of the chapter because nobody wants to sit in their sadness. 
Most people avoid these deep feelings of sadness, this bleak grief that can come at any point in your life on a whole array of things that could happen to you. And then she just talks about how like she remembers a time when she was deeply sad about, and I want to say it was one of her parents had cancer and her husband just looked at her and it was a lightning bolt moment for her and said, you will not always feel this way. And that's hopefully the good thing about sadness is that it's, it can't be forever. And so she talks about how people really do prevent themselves from going deeper into it and exploring it. And and there's a sentence that I highlighted that she said, just sit down, close your eyes, feel the emotions, and let them course to your mind. And how timely is that? She wrote this book, I think, three years ago. I think it was 2017, which that's awesome. Everything happens for a reason, right? But then how timely is it, 2018, so two years ago, that she's saying, like, you got to sit in your sadness sometimes. And we have to be able to acknowledge and express those feelings at work, again, with a certain type of balance. So she asked questions like, how might I feel more supported, stronger, and better had I been able to talk about sadness with my teaching partner, principal, and grade level team? So when you're thinking about this part of the chapter, what benefits do you see if we all were able to just start acknowledging our feelings more and intentional conversations in the workplace? And I feel like we're headed that way. I feel like we're going more towards an emotional intelligence awareness in general, Maybe a pandemic is going to highlight that. But I feel like with coaching and things, there's more questions, let people talk. But what benefits do you guys see if we started acknowledging our feelings more? Became all feely at work. I think it would open up some communication that would build better teams and better relationships. If you're always, you know, if you're only always talking about work or planning or whatever it is that you're, you're meeting with and not talking about how any of this like this job is all the feels <laughs> like yeah we have a very emotional job and a very emotionally taxing and stressful job and if we're just kind of like glossing over that and ignoring it i don't think we're really growing as a team or as educators and we won't be able to take care of each other um you know if we're not having those conversations so i think it's i think it's important even if you're not you don't have to be like best friends if you're you know, calling teammates to be able to have a emotionally intelligent conversation and get into that stuff. So. Right. Um, yeah, I like uh, how you mentioned that too, Carrie. And, you know, as I was reading this part of how her husband was asking her just to sit in the sadness, um, it reminded me of Shocker, a TV episode. <laughs> and as we know, I watch way too much TV, but it reminded me of a Grey's Anatomy episode. Oh. <laughs> Where Izzy loses Denny, ah, that and she's one. literally on the floor having shiva for Denny, and she's not Jewish, but she's literally there sitting in her. Yes, sadness. I remember that, that episode. Like physical, and everyone's trying to help get her out of it, but she had to sit there until she was ready. And I think there's something very powerful about that because most of us don't want to sit in something for too long, especially when it's uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's part of the problem is that sometimes when we're not willing to face those emotions, it doesn't help us in the long run. There's still going to be lingering effects from that if we really don't go through those processes of, of grief or whatever we want to call it to really move past it. And so that was that's what anchored me to that for some reason. Like I said, I watch Rachel's TV. But it was a very concrete example of like, 
really just being in that moment, even though it was terrible, but then she was able to rise from it and move on. Like you have to go through that mm -hmm. and really accept it for what it is so that you can move past it. Well, and that's the basis of trauma-informed uh, teaching and learning too. Like, or just even working through trauma, period. If you look at anything, you can't get past trauma unless you like sit in it and work through it and process it. I thought you were going to say something about like all of us sitting in our living rooms in sadness when that happened. <laughs> because when, I never forget seeing that. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's totally not educational. But I like really felt that when you brought that example up. I, I know. Like, I'm like, that's that was like so bad. It yes. It hit me because that, that's an emotional scene. <laughs> it like, is emotional. I was like, oh my god. Yeah, we're all sitting in sadness. I haven't <laughs> seen that. Was, but for me, I'm also I can be very literal. So yeah. That's why. It, it, no, it, it was really so good. No, I think that's why that show is probably so successful because it really taps into it. Yes. Well, I love how she just wraps up this whole chapter with just a reminder to look for the light and. She says, in December, as the first half of the school year comes to a close and our planet cycles into winter, perhaps our school communities could gather to identify and celebrate bright spots. And then she talks about how if the, if the whole community could name our own growth and surface the connections between our own learning and the growth of others. So just using sentence stems like, I'm proud of myself for, or naming it in someone else and saying, I also saw you grow when... But if we look for the light in ourselves and in others, being reminded that when the nights are long and the sun hangs low on the horizon, we just need to pay closer attention. The light is always there. So thank you, Sam and Carrie. Until next time, everyone, we will see you. And here's to taking our learning and transforming the world.